Greetings from Florida with Joe Torino is explicit in every way. Listener discretion is advised. Greetings from Florida, folks. I am Joe Torino, and this is episode three. I just have a quick announcement before we get started today. Um, I've decided to move the show release day from every other Wednesday to every other Friday, only because I think it's going to make it a little easier on me to be able to manage my time between my work and home life and still have the time to research, write, and produce each episode. Uh, Luckily, we're only on episode three, so it's not a huge change, but I figured it would be best to just let you know that this is the plan going forward. So thank you all for understanding as um, I'm just learning this. So uh, still trying to work out a lot of kinks, you know, getting the show going. But uh, I think it's going pretty well so far. And uh, I just wanted to say thank you again for all of you who've tuned into this episode as well as the last two episodes truly appreciate all the love and support that the show has received so far and uh, I've been really enjoying digging into these topics and learning some interesting things that I didn't know about my home and if this is your first episode that you're listening to welcome I hope you enjoy what you hear on today's episode and uh, when this one's over why don't you go back and listen to the first two episodes I think you'll really enjoy them and you might even learn some cool shit that you didn't know or don't You know, it's your choice. I mean, it's not like someone's got a gun to your head. And uh, speaking of guns to your head, today we're talking pirates. As far back as I can remember, I've always wanted to be a pirate. Actually, no, that's a lie but I have always been fascinated by pirates. Maybe it's because I live in a state that's surrounded by water or because I've ridden the Pirates of the Caribbean ride more times than I could count. Or maybe it's because I've been singing along to Jimmy Buffett's A Pirate Looks at 40 ever since I learned how to talk. Whatever it is, I've always loved hearing or reading tales of swashbuckling, salt-soaked scalawags, pillaging and plundering villages in search of booty, then burying their hall on a deserted island and marking its location on a map with a bloody X. I remember picking up books on pirates as a kid and reading all about the lives and careers of some of the most famous pirates like Edward Teach, aka Blackbeard, Calico Jack Rackham, Anne Bonny, Captain Kidd, and Black Bart. All of them sailing the high seas under their own flags, attacking and stealing loot from their enemies, And I can remember imagining what life would have been like on the pirate colonies during the golden age of piracy, like Nassau, Port Royal, and Tortuga. And it was at this time that I also learned that Florida was considered to be a hotbed of pirate activity as well. It all started back when Florida was just still a Spanish territory. You see, 52 years after Juan Ponce de Leon arrived in Florida, 
St. Augustine was founded and it quickly became a vibrant seaport. Spanish ships would use Florida's accessible shoreline as a key stop during their long journeys. And of course, once the pirates got word of these stopovers, they began attacking and robbing these vessels, as well as the city of St. Augustine itself. The first big pirate attack happened in June 1586 by the English pirate Sir Francis Drake. Drake was one of the most famous pirates of the time and was known to the Spanish as El Drake, or the Sea Dragon, by the end of this attack. The story goes like this. Drake was returning home to England after his infamous raid on Cartagena, Colombia. With him was a fleet of 23 ships carrying more than 2,000 raiders. They were sailing with the Gulf Stream up the Florida coast when they spotted a light burning in the darkness. Upon further investigation, they saw that the light was coming from a Spanish military outpost located on present-day Anastasia Island, which marked the entrance to the St. Augustine Harbor. Drake and his men attacked the outpost. Totally outgunned and outnumbered, the Spanish defenders and townsfolk fled into the swamps and marshes, leaving Drake and his men to raid the town. They took anything of value that they could find, and before leaving, they burned St. Augustine to the ground. St. Augustine was rebuilt, but later in 1688, the notorious Jamaican pirate Robert Searles a.k.a. Captain Rude Boy Shaba, captured a Spanish ship off the coast of Cuba that was bound for the settlement to deliver flour. Holding the crew at gunpoint, Lord Amarse, he sailed the ship right into the St. Augustine Harbor. Searles instructed his men who were hiding below deck to wait until midnight to begin their attack on the unsuspecting city. When asked by his men where they should begin the attack, Searles responded, Right near the beach, boy. Shaba. All right, I'll stop with that now. At the stroke of midnight, the pirates stormed ashore, overpowered the city guards, and ran rampant through the streets of St. Augustine, murdering 60 people, which at the time was about a quarter of the city's population, while they pillaged public storehouses, churches, and houses. Among the dead were several children, including a five-year-old girl that was killed by Searles himself. Legend has it that the ghost of the child that Searles killed haunted him for years after causing him to lose his mind and eventually commit suicide. And these are just two examples of the pirate attacks that happened within the first 175 years of Florida being colonized. Just imagine how many other times pirates attacked ships and settlements along Florida's coast during that time. And of course, over the next several hundred years, as the state continued to develop and more seaports sprang up along both the Atlantic and Gulf Coasts, the pirate activity continued to do so as well. Just like St. Augustine, cities such as Miami, Key West, Jacksonville, as well as several others along the West Coast and the Panhandle, all have some sort of pirate legend and lore attached to them. So it doesn't come as a surprise that Florida has come to embrace this rich, oftentimes violent history over the years, and it's still very much a part of our culture today. For example, St. Augustine is home to the St. Augustine Pirate and Treasure Museum, which is also known as the Pirate Soul Museum, and it houses the largest and most authentic collection of pirate artifacts in the world. 
And in Key West, the Mel Fisher Maritime Museum is an amazing place to learn all about the pirates, treasures, and shipwrecks found all along the Florida Keys. But if I had to name just one city in the state that takes its love of all things pirate and cranks that shit up to 11, that city would be none other than Tampa, Florida. When it comes to pirates, the city of Tampa is all in. I mean, they've got pirate-themed restaurants and bars, pirate clothing stores, and museum exhibits. They even have two pirates buried in downtown Tampa's Oaklawn Cemetery, the city's oldest burying grounds. And after a long night of two-for-ones in Tampa's historic Ebor City, even you may end up sounding like a pirate yourself. Or in my case, an upscale lounge slash bowling alley called Splitsville located in the Channel District. And here's a little PSA for you. If the adult beverage that you order arrives to your table in a giant glass fishbowl, contains multiple brown and clear liqueurs, and has four or more straws in it, this means that said adult beverage is intended for four or more adults, not just one 20-something-year-old who liked the party. Well, I, I guess it was the pirate's life for me back in those days. So, moving on. In 1974, when Tampa was chosen as the first of two cities to be granted an NFL expansion franchise, a citywide Name the Team contest was hosted, where most of the submissions were, surprise, surprise, pirate-related. Some of these submissions included names like The Outlaws, The Pirates, how original, Marine Raiders, Rowdies, Avengers, Bandits, and of course, as we know them today, the Buccaneers. And if this wasn't enough, Tampa is also home to the world's oldest and largest pirate-themed festival called Gasparilla Fest. Each year, hundreds of thousands of people, both local and visitors from all over the world, invade the streets of Tampa to drink, dance, and party like a pirate during this Mardi Gras-style celebration. What started out as a surprise pirate invasion on horseback during a May Day festival back in 1904, the formerly one-day event has evolved into a two-month-long Gasparilla season, which runs approximately from January through early March. The season's events include three major parades, a film festival, an arts festival, music festival, a race, the Gasparilla Bowl, which is a college football game, and many other smaller events that vary from year to year. The event that really kicks everything off is the Gasparilla Day Invasion, which takes place on the last Saturday in January. The invasion is organized by the Mystic Crew of Gasparilla, and on this day, members of the crew, accompanied by a flotilla of hundreds if not thousands of smaller private boats, sail across the Tampa Bay into downtown Florida, on a 165-foot-long, fully-rigged pirate ship, the only ship of its kind in the world. The ship moors beside the Tampa Convention Center sometime around noon, accompanied by cannon fire, after which the pirate captain and his crew disembark and demand that the mayor hand over the key to the city in a playful ceremony. And this is just in the first few hours of this day. To celebrate their capture of the city, the captain and his crew share their wealth, glittering beads, treasures, and doubloons with a lively, enthusiastic crowd in what is known as the Parade of Pirates. The Gasparilla Parade of Pirates features more than 103 elaborate floats, 
five marching bands, over 50 distinct crews, and of course, the infamous YMKG Pirates, all making their way down the historic Bayshore Boulevard and into downtown Tampa amidst a sea of attendees all decked out in their colorful pirate garb, dancing along to festive music along the four and a half mile parade route. The Parade of Pirates has been very popular in Tampa since its inception and has grown into the third largest parade in the United States with an average attendance of over 300,000 people and it even reached close to a million people in one year. Of course, there wouldn't be a Gasparilla Festival if it wasn't for the pirate Gasparilla himself. In fact, Tampa probably wouldn't be the pirate-loving city it is today without this legendary character. Jose Gaspar, also known by his nickname Gasparilla, is an apocryphal Spanish pirate who supposedly lived sometime between 1756 and 1821 and is considered to be the last of the buccaneers. Though his early life, his motivations, and his piratical exploits differ depending on who is telling the story, all versions generally agree that he was a remarkably active pirate during Florida's second Spanish period, which lasted from 1783 to 1821, that he amassed a huge fortune by taking many prizes and taking many hostages for ransom, and that he died by leaping from his ship rather than face capture by the U.S. Navy, leaving behind an enormous and, as of yet, undiscovered treasure. Now, before we really start digging in, I've got to tell you, there really weren't any solid facts that I was able to find during my research that can tell us about his early life. What I did find out really quickly after looking into several sources is that his origins read like one of those old Choose your own adventure books from back in the day. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read you three of the many versions of his origins that I was able to find. And you are going to choose which one you like the best and roll with it. Because, well, because why the hell not? The way that I look at it is if historians haven't been able to figure it out in the last few hundred years, then I sure as shit am not going to figure it out in a week and a half of research. All right, ready? So here we go. Version 1. Gaspar began his life as a troubled youth who kidnapped a young girl and held her for ransom. He was captured and was given the option between going to prison or joining the Navy. He ends up choosing to go to sea, where he served with distinction for several years, before leading a mutiny against a tyrannical captain and then fled to Florida with the stolen ship. So that's version 1. Alright, version 2. Gaspar was a nobleman who achieved a high rank in the Spanish Royal Navy and became a counselor to King Charles III of Spain. He was popular in the court, but when he left one lover for another, the jilted woman made false charges against him that are often said to involve the theft of the crown jewels. Unjustly facing arrest, he commandeered a ship and fled, vowing to exact revenge on his country. Alright, and here is version 3. Gaspar was a brilliant Spanish admiral of questionable character who actually succeeded in stealing the crown jewels. When his theft was discovered, he seized the prized vessel of the Spanish fleet with a group of loyal followers and abandoned his wife and children to flee across the Atlantic Ocean to Florida. Witnesses claimed that as they watched the ship sail away, they could see Gaspar and his men all drop their pantaloons down to their knees 
and bend over while looking back and blowing kisses at them. Wild. I don't know about you guys, but I think version three is the clear winner for me. Um, but like I said earlier, there really is no official version of the events that led to Gaspar's decision to leave Spain for Florida. All that matters is that when he decided to leave his home and sail across the Atlantic, Jose Gaspar, the man, was dead. And Gasparilla, the pirate legend, was born. But Before we continue with the legendary story of Gasparilla, we're going to pause here for a quick ad break. Welcome back, guys. Uh, now let's dive right back in. Gasparilla and his crew made landfall in Florida and settled in the Charlotte Harbor area, which was virtually uninhabited at the time. The many barrier islands protecting the mainland provided a well-disguised headquarters in which Gasparilla and his crew could easily prey on unsuspecting ships. It also offered an excellent refuge in which to hide out. Gasparilla established a base on one of the larger islands that he would name Gasparilla Island after himself and soon became the feared scourge of the Gulf of Mexico and the Spanish Main, taking many ships as prizes and amassing a huge treasure cache. But the ships he captured to grow his fleet and all that sweet, sweet, shiny booty that they carried weren't the only prize. The people on board were as good as gold in Gasparilla's eyes. Most male prisoners would be forced to join his crew or they would be put to death. The women, on the other hand, were given the option of marrying one of his crew or they would be taken to the nearby island that he named Captiva Island for obvious reasons where they would be held for ransom or forced to serve as concubines to the pirates. If marriage was chosen, a ceremony was held, and the marriage covenant was to be strictly enforced. One of the more famous stories associated with the captives involves a Spanish princess named Yusepa, who was a passenger on one of the captured ships. Yusepa was returning to Spain from a trip to Mexico with 11 Mexican princesses, who were to be educated and married in Spain. After the ship was captured and the princesses were taken hostage, Gasparilla fell madly in love with Giuseppa. However, the princess rejected Gasparilla's advances. Growing impatient, he threatened to behead her if she would not submit to his lust, but still she refused him. Gasparilla then flew into a rage and killed her. Gasparilla, instantly regretting what he had just done, took her body to a nearby island where he buried her himself. He named the island Yusepa in her honor. The nearby Sanibel Island is said to have been named by Gasparilla's first mate, Rodrigo Lopez, after his lover who he had left back in Spain. Gasparilla realized that Lopez was growing weary of the pirate's life and after 13 long years, he longed to return to Spain to see his love Sanibel once again. Empathizing with his friend's plight, Gasparilla not only gave Lopez his consent, but he extended his blessing to his longtime friend and supplied him with a ship and several men to accompany him back to Spain. Gasparilla and his pirates were said to have terrorized the Gulf for nearly four decades. Though the exact number of ships that were captured throughout his career is unknown, it is said that Gasparilla's treasure cache, which was made up of coins, jewels, and other riches, was said to be valued at $30 million. But because he was now 65 years old, and because he had amassed such a large fortune, Gasparilla decided that it was time to retire. So on December 12, 1821, 
Gasparilla called his crew together to announce that it was time to call it quits, divide up the treasure, and live out their remaining days in luxury. But just as they were about to unearth their many years of accumulated treasures, a British merchant ship was spotted on the Gulf of Mexico horizon. And being the greedy, adventure-seeking lot that they had always been, Gasparilla's crew persuaded him to go after that one last ship. He then led his crew aboard their ship, and they began to pursue their prey for one last time. They quickly overtook the lumbering merchant ship, but when they fired a warning shot, the British flag was suddenly lowered and a United States flag was hoisted. The ship turned out to be the USS Enterprise, a pirate-hunting U.S. naval warship that had disguised itself as an unarmed ship of goods. A bloody battle ensued, and Gasparilla's ship was soon riddled with cannonballs. Many of Gasparilla's crew were killed during the battle, and the ship was rendered disabled, burned, and was out of gunpowder. And when he saw a U.S. Navy rowboat approaching the lifeless ship, instead of surrendering, Gasparilla wrapped a heavy anchor chain around himself and jumped off the bow, and his body disappeared into the depths of the Gulf of Mexico. In this last defiant act, as he plunged into the water with his sword held high over his head, he said, Gasparilla dies by his own hand, not his enemies. Most of his crew was killed during this final battle. However, there were 12 survivors. They were captured and taken to New Orleans, where they would stand trial for acts of piracy and were imprisoned while they awaited their execution day. Out of the 12 men, 11 were hanged. The one final survivor was the ship's cabin boy, who was also tried as a pirate, but only had to serve time in jail and was eventually released. And that is the story of Gasparilla, the last of the buccaneers. At least that is the story of Gasparilla according to Juan Gomez. And who the hell is Juan Gomez, you ask? Well, let me tell you. Juan Gomez, also known as Panther John because he lived on Panther Key near Marco Island, Florida, was a man that claimed to have known Gasparilla very well while he was alive. He also claimed to know the whereabouts of his vast treasure cache because he claimed to be Gasparilla's cabin boy all grown up. Or was he his first mate? Oh, wait, that's right. He was Gasparilla's brother-in-law. You see, old John seems to have made a lot of claims over the years that simply weren't true. Even though he was well known along Florida's Gulf Coast as an expert hunting and fishing guide and boat pilot, it would appear that Juan Gomez was mostly known as an old eccentric teller of tales, which he would usually share around a campfire during a fishing trip or a hunting expedition. Various versions of his exploits were ultimately recorded in letters or later appeared in the occasional newspaper article of his day. Interestingly enough, no mention of Gasparilla even made it into print during Pather John's lifetime. In fact, there is no evidence that Gasparilla actually existed. There's no contemporaneous mention of his life or his exploits that have been found in Spanish or American ship logs. No court records, newspapers, or other archives, and there are no physical artifacts linked to Gasparilla and his men that have been discovered in the area where he supposedly established his pirate kingdom. It wasn't until after Juan Gomez's death that the first written account of Gasparilla actually appeared. 
the first printed account of Gasparilla was in a brochure for the Gasparilla Inn Resort in the recently established town of Boca Grande on Gasparilla Island. Though it was authored by publicist Pat Lemonnier for the Charlotte Harbor and Northern Railway Company, which owned the resort, the late Juan Gomez was cited as the primary source for its tale of the pirate Gasparilla. It would actually be from this promotional pamphlet that the Gasparilla legend would spread. In 1923, a Boston historian named Francis B.C. Bradley received a copy of the Gasparilla Inn brochure from Robert Bradley, who was the president of the Charlotte Harbor and Northern Railway Company at the time. Assuming that the story was authentic, Bradley included Gasparilla in a book that he was writing about piracy called Piracy in the West Indies and its Suppression. Bradley's book was then used as a source for later works such as Philip Goss's Pirates Who's Who and Frederick W. Dow's Florida Old and New. And over the next few decades, several more books about pirates or Florida history continued to include Gasparilla as a real historical figure, leading to even more confusion about the authenticity of his story and repeated attempts to find his lost treasure. I guess fact-checking wasn't a thing back then. The preservation of the legend of Gasparilla can also be credited to Edwin D. Lambright, who was the editor of the Tampa Morning Tribune in the 1930s. In 1936, he wrote Life and Exploits of Gasparilla, the Last of the Buccaneers. Around the time of the Gasparilla invasion and the Florida State Fair, Lambright occasionally published portions of his Gasparilla story in the paper, further authenticating the legend. And ever since their first invasion back in 1904, ye mystic crew of Gasparilla has continued to honor the legend and legacy of the pirate Gasparilla through their annual festival. And they have been able to enrich an already diverse culture of the city of Tampa in other ways as well. YMKG was instrumental in establishing the Intercrew Council, which has grown to include more than 60 other crews, each of them organized for specific charitable community service purposes. And the Invasion and Parade of Pirates not only provides entertainment to millions of people from all over the world, but it has an overall local economic impact of over $40 million. Now that's what I call pirate booty. So in closing... Since the 1800s, the legend of Gasparilla has provided many adventurous and colorful stories for the residents of Florida's Gulf Coast, especially to those in the Tampa Bay and Charlotte Harbor area. So in my opinion, whether Gasparilla the pirate actually existed or not doesn't really matter. The legend exists, and that's what matters. And that does it for episode three. This one was a lot of fun for me, and I hope that it was for you too. This is a story that I've heard for years, and there are just so many versions of this legend that if I included everything, we would be here for a week. So for this episode's sake, I just decided that it would be best to cobble it together using bits and pieces of some of my favorite versions. At the end of the day, it's 99.9% a made-up story anyway, so does it really matter? And I've been to Tampa a bunch of times. It's a really cool city, uh, but I've never gone for Gasparilla. Um, 
you know, I've only gone for, you know, concerts and bush gardens. And the last few times I've gone have been to visit my brother and his family, but we still get to explore a little bit around downtown and the Channel District. But Ybor City is definitely one of my favorite places to explore. Um, I kind of get a Key West vibe from it. And the last time we were up there, we went out to St. Petersburg Beach, which is always nice, even though I'm not much of a beach person myself. Um, but I wanted to go downtown to do a little daytime ghost hunting at Oaklawn Cemetery, uh, but it started pouring. So next time that I'm up there, I'm definitely going to go and check that out. And I want to see the Tampa Theater because I've heard that that place is haunted as hell, too. Um, so we will definitely be revisiting Tampa uh, at some point in the show in the future just to talk about the ghosts and hauntings and maybe a couple other cool stories. So thank you again for listening to this episode and please remember to subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're enjoying the show, the best way to show your support is to rate and leave a review as it really helps others find the show on the various streaming platforms. You can also show your support by sharing the show with your family, friends, and coworkers. Go follow the show on Instagram at at Flowirdapod, where I will be posting photos to go along with each episode. You can also join the new Facebook group where you and other listeners can discuss previous episodes, get show-related announcements, and suggest future topics that you want covered. You can find the links to both of these pages at our website, www.flowirdapod.com. Also, if you or anyone you know have had a true, creepy, or just plain old weird experience while living in or visiting Florida, I want to hear all about it. So please continue to send those in via the contact section of the show's website or send them in directly to the show's email, flowirdapod at gmail.com with the title, My Florida Story on the subject line. The spooky season is upon us, so I really want to hear your, your creepy shit. So send those things in. Thank you to Modern Mimes for creating the awesome theme music for the show. Go check out their music on Apple Music, Spotify, or pretty much anywhere else you purchase or stream your music. Go follow them on Instagram and Facebook at, at Modern Mimes, and go check out their music videos over on their YouTube channel. They will be hitting the road for their next tour soon, so please visit their website, www.modernmimes.com, for tour dates and ticket information, as well as band merch. And have you ever wanted to go on a real-life paranormal investigation? If you live in or around or are visiting South Florida, my team, War Party Paranormal, hosts public interactive paranormal investigations every month in several historic and haunted locations throughout South Florida. All the proceeds from tickets to these events go right back to these locations to help with uh, historical preservation and maintenance. For more information on our upcoming events and how to purchase tickets, please visit our website, www.warpartyparanormal.com. Uh, here you can also find links to our team's social media accounts. And if you're experiencing paranormal occurrences in your own homes or businesses, War Party Paranormal specializes in residential cases and has helped hundreds of clients throughout Florida. All of our residential cases are completely confidential and 100% free. So please feel free to contact us and our case manager will reach right back out to you as soon as possible. And don't forget to tune in every Monday night at 9 p.m. Eastern to the War Party Paranormal Radio Show. 
where our co-host, team leader Eric Vanderland and case manager Mike Del Coro, as well as various team members, not only discuss the locations we've investigated, but we also share the evidence captured from them. The show also features interviews with special guest investigators and celebrities from some of your favorite paranormal television and internet shows, so go check it out. You can find the show on the KGRA Digital Broadcasting Network website and YouTube channel, as well as on the War Party Paranormal Facebook page and YouTube channel. We'll be back in two weeks for episode four of Greetings from Florida, but until then, please remember sharing is caring, so split that giant fishbowl drink with your friends. If she says she's not interested, don't threaten to cut off her head, just move on to the next captive, uh, potential mate. And of course, stay weird, Florida. We'll see you next time.